Now I'm going to ask you to take your Bible. We have been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be there before we get to the end of our time together this morning. But I'm actually going to ask you to take your Bible to the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Because what we're going to talk about today has roots in that passage of Scripture. For the last six weeks together, we have been looking carefully and thoughtfully and in a hope-filled way at this marvelous armor that God has provided to us through His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And that armor is the means by which He promises us matchless, limitless, and unconquerable strength. And if we will live in that strength, the Scripture says, we will stand when the devil and his schemes and the forces that he arrays against us come against us. When we use this armor, when we live in the strength that this armor provides, the Scripture says we will stand in that evil day. We have been looking at the different pieces of this armor. We noted that the armor was first worn by our divine champion, and every piece of the armor thus far, we've seen a direct connection to the life of the Lord, and really even to the Old Testament pictures of the Messiah, that anointed, appointed champion that God would raise up to deliver his people. And as you think about that armor, and as you think about why it is so necessary Paul has been telling us in the book of Ephesians that there is a worthy walk. There is a way that we are to live because we have received and have have become owners, as it were, of this magnificent peace, this shalom that God has made. And as we live in the kingdoms of this world, as we go into the realm of darkness to announce that amazing shalom, that amazing gospel you can be sure that the enemy of our soul, the ancient enemy of God, the enemy who is in control of this kingdom of darkness is going to come hard against us. And the armor is intended to keep us on that worthy walk in the heat of battle. It's intended really to do what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians to do at the end of his first letter, when he said to them, be steadfast, unmovable, ever abounding in your labor for the Lord, knowing that your labor is not empty, it's not vain, it's not worthless. But the truth is that there are many times, isn't this the case in, in our lives, there are just many times where it does seem worthless. It does seem empty. It does seem vain. We, we serve the Lord. We, we get up in the morning. We have our devotions. We come to church. We turn from the evil way, just like Solomon warns us and exhorts us to do in Proverbs. We, 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 we do attempt to trust in the Lord, and, and we, we don't want to lean on our own understanding, and we devote ourselves to that. And at the end of the day, as we look back over what's happening in us and around us, it seems like all of that is for naught. I want to be very careful how I say this, but in the last 10 days, I've had at least eight conversations with dear members of this body or very close friends who are being crushed 
and overwhelmed by life. And the truth be told, you've had those moments yourself. I mean, what, what will, let me give you some examples of this. What will sustain you when your sins crush you? We've all been there. What will fuel joy in you when your earthly body is assailed by irreversible weakness? It's restricted by some unforeseen accident or, or you encounter a diagnosis of some life-ending disease. What will keep you going through the unexpected loss of an infant or a loved one? What will sustain you as you watch the end of life approaching relentlessly, suddenly, unexpectedly, and sometimes ruthlessly for yourself or for someone you love? How do you keep going when the job or the ministry that you dreamed of has been denied or has been lost to you? How do you go forward when a cherished relationship has been irreparably broken? How do you support the agony and the pain of a marriage that has dissolved or a child that has walked away from the faith? Maybe another way of saying is what, what will sustain you when truth seems lost and justice is nowhere to be seen? What will strengthen you so that you will be immovable, unshakable? What will help you to continue to abound in your love and service for Christ when in fact everything about that service seems to be fake? I mean, that's just eight conversations. Those conversations could be repeated in church after church after church. It could be repeated in life after life after life. And Paul's answer to all of that, Paul's answer to what will sustain you is the next piece of armor in the series that we have been looking at. When he says to you, there is a helmet, and when you wear this helmet, the hope that it brings you will sustain you. And there's no surprise then that Paul describes his helmet as the helmet of salvation. Helmets are designed, as you know, to do two things. The first is obvious. The first thing a helmet does is it protects a key part of your body, your head, the command center, the seat of your thoughts, your emotions, your, your thinking process, your ability to navigate the, the part of you that commands every other system that gives you strength and life. If you take a blow to your head and you are disoriented or you are disabled or, or you are knocked out or perhaps even given a mortal blow, then everything else stops. It doesn't matter how well your circulatory system operates. It doesn't matter how well your nervous system is functioning. It doesn't matter how strong all the rest of your body is. When you take a debilitating blow to your head, everything is affected. And Satan knows that when he can get to your thinking, to what you actually believe, everything else will be affected. And so this helmet that Paul is talking about is designed to protect that aspect of our Christian life. And then helmets also have a secondary function, and that is to identify the wearer. Often, 
a Roman general or a Roman officer would have a distinguishing crest on their helmet so that those men who served with them or under them could immediately identify them and locate them and see where they were at all times. So that in the heat of battle, they would be giving constant attention to that officer. They always knew where to find him so that if he were giving them a signal or he were in some way indicating something to them, they would immediately know where to look. And Paul says, now there is a helmet that God gives to you that does that. This helmet will protect you. And because this helmet was first worn by the one who is our champion, our trustworthy Savior, our wise and benevolent Lord, whenever we see this helmet, we immediately know where he is. We immediately identify him, and we are looking to him for our deliverance. It's not surprising that Paul would talk this way, because in the, the armor, as he's unfolded it, every piece of that armor had something to do with what Jesus Christ did for us. The belt of truth represents the perfect obedience that he lived for his entire life. And that perfect obedience, that faithfulness, that truthfulness earned for him a perfect righteousness that was imputed to us. That obedience that Christ earned was not an obedience he needed, it was an obedience I needed. That righteousness that, that he fulfilled was not because in some way he needed that righteousness, it was because I needed that righteousness. And that obedience and that faithfulness and that righteousness was all credited to my account. And through that, he made a peace a shalom, and that's the theme of the book of Ephesians. It's the shalom that God has made. And because we have that obedience, that belt of truth, and that breastplate of righteousness, and now we stand right with God and we have this shalom, we strap on an eager readiness to take the message of that obedience and that righteousness that Christ earned for us and that Christ imputed to us and the peace that Christ made for us, we strap a, an eager readiness to go anywhere under any circumstances to announce that to people who are in the kingdoms of darkness. And when we go, God promises, as we saw last week, to be our shield like he was for Abraham. And like he was for all of the Old Testament saints, he was their shield. And he himself will protect us from the darts the enemy shoots at us when we believe the things that God told us to believe about himself and about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not surprising then to find out that since belief is such a big part of, of the utilization of the shield, that Satan is going to come hard at our belief. And so what will protect our belief? And the answer is the helmet of salvation. So what I want to do this morning is I want to do two things. I want to show you the Old Testament connection to this helmet that's in Isaiah 59. And then I want to answer four simple questions that are designed to help us understand how this helmet actually works so that we can avail ourselves of its protection 
when Satan engages, like Paul said he would, in hand-to-hand combat. The shield is designed to protect you when Satan fires those arrows from a distance. But Paul also said that we were going to have times where we would wrestle. And the idea of wrestling there, as we saw very early on in our series, was hand-to-hand combat. There were going to be times in the battle where Satan is going to come very close to you, and he's going to come sort of on a one-on-one sort of level, and he's going to put his hand on you with the idea of tearing you down or throwing you down. And this helmet is designed to protect you at that moment. So what are these Old Testament connections? So let me encourage you to actually open up your Bible or turn to Isaiah 59 on the device where you're reading your Bible this morning, and I want you to follow along. I want you to see the flow of this passage because it is crucial to understanding how this helmet works. The chapter opens with a statement about God. And his ability to save. Listen to how Isaiah speaks to Israel. He says this, Behold, in other words, pay attention. Look carefully at what I'm about to say. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, the reason that you haven't experienced deliverance from your enemies is not because God has lost his power to save you. His arm isn't short. His arm hasn't changed one bit. And the reason that you haven't been delivered is also not that God hasn't been hearing your prayers because he has been hearing. His ear is open. There's nothing wrong with God's arm and there's nothing wrong with God's ear. So the question about why you haven't been delivered doesn't rest with God, it rests with you. And immediately in verse 2, we find out why God hasn't delivered. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then beginning in verse 3 and going all the way down to verse 8, there is a litany of sins that these people are holding on to and that they refuse to repent of and that they cover up. In fact, they're described at a certain point in this text as weaving a web like a spider would weave a web and using that web to try to cover themselves to sort of hide all of this wickedness. And it's interesting that Isaiah would use the idea of a spider's web in this idea because in ancient Israel, a spider was a very impure and unclean insect. And it's like these people are so impure and they're so unclean and they're so marred by their sins that when they go to cover their sins, they cover their sins with something sinful as though God isn't going to see. And in verses 7 and 8, because of their determination to cover up their sin and continue in them, Isaiah says to them, desolation and destruction are in your highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And wickedness has become so widespread and so common in 
God's nation, Israel, that Isaiah concludes justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. We hope for justice and there is none and for salvation, but it is far from us. Isaiah says, now that's why the arm of the Lord hasn't acted. That's why the ear of the Lord who has been hearing your cries has not responded. He hasn't acted and he hasn't responded, not because of his arm and not because of his ear, but because of his eye, because of what he has seen in you. So in verse 16, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And then in verse 16, or that was verse, uh, end of verse 15 rather, verse 16, he saw something else. He looked and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So here's the picture. God is looking at his people. His people have been totally engaged in all manner of iniquity and sin to the point that they've tried to cover it up with more sinful covering, and God has seen it, and and they have come under immense judgment and wrath, and, and God sees all of this, and there's nobody to deliver He's displeased about two things. He's troubled about two things. He's troubled about the lack of justice, and he's even more troubled about the fact that there's no one to intercede and no one to deliver his people. And so he decides to do it himself. Look at verse 16. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He decided to deliver these people. He decided to bring righteousness to them. He decided to deliver and save them. And so in verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of deliverance or salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Here is an anointed champion who is going to come to deliver his people. And he's going to bring with him righteousness. He's going to bring with him salvation. He's going to bring with him zeal. He's going to bring with him vengeance. Four things described as different pieces of clothing or war clothing or armor, as it were, that he's going to wear when he comes. And verse 18 says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Remember the zeal that he's coming with? Remember the vengeance that he's coming with? He is going to recompense He's going to repay those who are his enemies, those who retained their wickedness and refused to repent. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. In other words, this is going to be global. He's not going to just stop with Israel. He may start with them, but by the time he's done, this is going to be global. The entire earth is going to fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the east, from the rising 
of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And then comes this amazing passage, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And God says, I'm going to send this Redeemer to you because I made a covenant with you. I made a promise. Do you see that in verse 21? As for me, this is God talking, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. I have made a promise to you. I am promising you that I'm going to come, and when I come in this Redeemer, I am going to bring deliverance and salvation, and I am also going to bring judgment, and wrath. And that's my promise to you. And then he talks to the Redeemer. He starts talking to the Redeemer, and he says to the Redeemer, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, saith the Lord from this time forth, and evermore. He says to this Redeemer, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to put my spirit on you, and I'm going to give you my words, and you're going to have offspring. You are going to have children that follow you, and that spirit and those words that I'm putting on you are going to be in them. So the spirit and the words that God gives to the Redeemer that is going to come to Israel is the same spirit and the same words that he's going to give to whoever this Redeemer's followers are, his offspring, his children. And it's not until 800 years later that that Redeemer actually arrives in the city of David, in Bethlehem of Judea, and he's born And on the day of his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And God puts his words into the mouth of that Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day that he met Satan for the great contest that would determine the outcome of Jesus' obedience, it wasn't Jesus' words, it was God's words that God put in Jesus' mouth by which he rebuked the devil. Do you see how this armor is working? There is a spirit, and there are words that God gave to this Redeemer and that this Redeemer has given to you. And that spirit and those words remain with you. And they become the hope. They become the helmet that we wear because Jesus wore it first. And that brings us to the second thing we want to do, and that is we want to ask and answer four simple questions. The first question is is the most basic of all. What exactly is the helmet of salvation that Paul talks about? And at first, it would seem very evident, right? I mean, when when, when we talk about salvation, it's, it's when we come to Christ and we get down on our knees and our heart and we say to the Lord, I repent of my sins, I I am just like those people in Isaiah 59. I I may not have committed the exact same sins, but I've got the same sins 
I've got the same problem, I've got the same iniquity, and I've got the same problem. I keep trying to cover it up, I keep trying to excuse it, I keep going back to it, and and so I need to just repent of all of that, and, and I need to come, and I need to get a forgiveness that I can't earn because I don't have any righteousness of my own. So I need to come and repent of all of that and receive your forgiveness and ask that your righteousness would be imputed to my account, that it would be credited to my account. I want to be your son, your daughter, your child, your offspring, your disciple. And initially, it makes total sense. That's what the helmet is. The only problem is that when Paul is talking to the people and he's telling them about this helmet, they're already saved. They were saved way back in chapter 1 when Paul says, now let me talk to you about what God the Father did through God the Son, and the Holy Spirit that is in you is the guarantee of your salvation. So he's talking to people who are already saved, and he's telling them, now you need the helmet of salvation. So whatever this helmet is, it can't be referring to their initial salvation. And so where do we go for help? Well, Paul wrote a very similar thing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Let me read it to you. This is, this is a verse worth noting. Paul says, we belong, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul says to the Thessalonians, now now you need to wear something as the helmet. And the thing that you need to wear that will be the helmet is this idea of the hope of salvation. So we need to talk about two terms very quickly. We need to talk about hope and we need to talk about salvation. Hope isn't just the idea that I'm sort of hopeful that this will happen. It's the idea of I am absolutely confident that this will happen. Based on what I see and based on what I know of God, I am absolutely confident beyond the shadow of any doubt that this is going to happen. This is the idea of confident expectation. So Paul says, whatever the helmet is, it starts here. It starts with your confident expectation in something. And the something that you are to be confident about is your deliverance. And so the question is, what salvation does Paul have in mind when he talks to you about confident expectation of deliverance? And it's in that text that we just looked at in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 9, when Paul says to these Thessalonians, God did not destine you for wrath, but instead for deliverance, for salvation. Do you remember back in Isaiah 59, the four things that this champion would have? He would have... In his, in, in his life, in his armor, he would have righteousness, he would have salvation or deliverance, and then he would have vengeance, and he would have wrath. 
And there is coming a day when he is going to come with those four things. And the first part of that prophecy has already happened. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he came with righteousness and salvation to everybody, right? For everybody. But when he comes again the second time in Revelation, when you see him the second time, he isn't going to be riding on a colt of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem as as a peaceful, sovereign savior. He's going to be riding a white war horse. He is going to be coming as a conquering general at the head of his heavenly armies, and we are going to be with him, and he is going to bring judgment and vengeance on all of the earth for not repenting of their sins. That's the whole point to the book of Revelation. And at the end of that story, everybody, every individual, every human being who's ever lived on the planet will stand before the judgment throne of God and will receive a verdict. They will either be welcomed in and protected from the wrath of the one on that throne, or they will face that wrath and bear that wrath forever in a place called hell. And here's the question. How do you know on that day when you stand there that you will actually be welcomed in, that you personally will be protected from that wrath? And Paul's answer to that is that's what the helmet does. The helmet is the confident assurance the confident expectation that when you stand before God on judgment day at the end of the age and you stand there, he will look at you and he will see a different righteousness than yours. He will see a different obedience than yours. He will see the peace that he made with Jesus that is now yours. And he will say to you, welcome in to the joy of your Lord. And there will be other people that will stand there and they will have all of their righteousness. They will have all the things they did. Well, look at what we did here and look at what we did here and we did this and we said that and we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And God will look at them and he will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. That's that's what this helmet does. This helmet that we're talking about here protects you by giving you confident assurance that as you live in this world, as you live throughout this life, that that you have been forever protected from that wrath, from the wrath to come. Because when Jesus showed up the first time with righteousness and salvation, you repented you came, you, you sought him, you said to him, I, I repent, I, I turn from my sins, I, I want your righteousness, I want your obedience, I want your forgiveness. And when that peace was extended to you, it becomes the shield, it becomes the helmet, it becomes the armor that you wear when Satan comes in this life to assault you about the life to come. Because we know from Scripture that Satan is an accuser. 
And the greatest thing he wants to accuse you of is that you really don't belong to God, that you really aren't his. And I can't tell you the many, many believers, myself included, who have labored for years about the assurance of our salvation. Did I really pray the prayer correctly? Was I really sincere when I prayed it? I don't remember the exact day. Because you go to some messages and people say, like, you had a birthday. How do you know you had a birthday? Look around. You're here. You had a birthday. And you know your birthday. So you should know your spiritual birthday. You should know the day, the time, and the hour. And I'm going, I have no clue. I think I was like 13. And then you start, well, like, I don't just think I was born in the month of October. I know I was born in the month of October. I have a birth certificate. So you take your Bible and you create a little birth certificate. You open up your Bible and you write a little thing there. On this day in the year of our Lord, 1900 and for some of you, 01 or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Whatever your day is and you sign it. I was born again. And some of you had to scratch through that and write a different date. And some of you scratched through it a lot. And you got like six dates. And then, and then, you know, it's like you hear somebody preach. It's like, well, if you have any sin in your life that you can't overcome, then you must not be saved because everybody knows that Christians live victoriously. Really? I mean, we have victory. There is a victory that God has given But I don't know about you, but there are certain sins that, I mean, it's like I have to struggle with those sins every single day. And it's like I can't get out of kindergarten. And so over a period of time, okay, it's okay, you know, when you're you're 12 and you're struggling with this. But when you're 50 and you're still struggling with it, and at some point you're like, God, I don't know if I'm saved. Something must have gone wrong. I know I said all the right words, but maybe, maybe it's like my computer. I, I put in the password, and, and, and I hit, and it just clicked and clicked and clicked, and I'm afraid to keep doing this because I don't want to get locked out. And Paul says, I need to explode that thinking out of your head because it's never been like that. It's never been like that. Your salvation never depended on your prayer. It never depended on your obedience. It never depended on the monopoly money of your righteousness. It never depended on any of that. It was always based on the obedience that Jesus rendered and the righteousness that he fulfilled and the peace that he made. And he gave it to you when you came to him and you asked him for it. Plain and simple. So how does this helmet work? If that's true, how does it work? And that's really the second question, and it's very simple in this way. The helmet delivers me from God's wrath to come. It, it actually gives me confidence that I will be delivered from the wrath to come. And we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. And then it protects me from the present wrath of Satan. We read this text together this morning as we began our worship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Where is all of that coming from? 
Where is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness coming against a Christian from? Answer, it's coming from Satan. It's coming against you. As it is written, remember, God said to this Redeemer in Isaiah 59, I put my spirit on you, and I'm going to give you words, and those words are going to be the words that you give to your offspring. Well, here are some of those words. It is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the answer. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul says this, for I am sure. I am confident. What are you so confident about? That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now stop and think about this. God's character stands behind that promise. You go back to Isaiah 59, this Redeemer, God, is going to send a Redeemer, but God is coming in this Redeemer with righteousness and salvation. His promise to deliver is based on His righteous character. If God fails to do something that He promised, He is no longer righteous. So when God makes a promise, His entire deity is staked on the fulfillment of that promise. That's why in Romans 9, the question, has God's word failed, is such an amazing and important question. Because if God's word failed, then all of what we read about in Romans 1 through 8, the righteousness of God being imputed to you on the basis of the work of Christ, if God failed to keep even one of his promises to Israel, then all of that is null and void because God's character has been broken. And so when God makes you a promise, you can rest assured with full confidence that his character backs that promise. And it's not just that. We can actually see his actions verifying and validating his promise. God has a perfect track record of keeping his promises. Not once. Not one detail. Not not one condition. Nothing. Every single promise that God has ever made in his word, he has kept. And the biggest illustration of that is right back in Isaiah 59. God said, I'm going to send a redeemer. And when that redeemer comes, he's going to bring four things. He's going to bring justice. I'm sorry, he's going to bring righteousness. And then he's going to bring deliverance, salvation. And then he's going to bring vengeance. And he's going to bring zeal or wrath. Two thousand years ago, God kept his promise. He sent that Redeemer, and his name was Jesus. And when he came the first time, what did he bring with him? Righteousness and salvation. I mean, the gospel writers themselves say that he came to seek and to save what? That which was lost. He learned obedience. He suffered obedience 
obediently unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we can look back now over 2,000 years and we can see that God kept that promise. But what about the second part of the promise? What about the whole bit about God coming in zeal and in wrath with vengeance on those who refuse to repent? And the whole book of Revelation is the story of that side of the promise. So we can look back and see that God has kept his promises, and and we can look forward and have full confidence that the same God who sent Jesus the Redeemer the first time is going to send Jesus the Redeemer the second time. And when Jesus the Redeemer shows up the second time with wrath for his enemies, and you stand before him, this helmet tells you you can stand there with joyful anticipation that you will be delivered. You will be delivered. And that brings us to the third question, and that is this. What will wearing this helmet require of me? So, so Pastor Sam, I want that helmet. I need that confidence. I need that assurance. And, and I would just suggest to you that as you think about that helmet, it starts here. You must examine yourselves the same way Paul told the Corinthians to examine themselves to make sure they were in the faith. Listen to how Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Don't take this for granted. Test yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? So, so how do I test myself? What's the point that I'm trying to discover? What is it I'm trying to examine to make sure it's true? And and the answer is this. Is Jesus Christ in me? Is the Holy Spirit of God in me or not? So let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where nobody else knew about something you had done, some sin you had committed, and you felt an immediate deep sorrow. You just knew this, that there was this sinking feeling that came in your heart. Nobody, nobody knew about it. There's no, no way anybody was going to know that there was just this sinking feeling in your heart and you knew instinctively that you had displeased God with that. Has that ever happened to you? Can I just say to you, that's a really good thing because that's not the devil producing that in you. There's somebody else inside you producing that, and it's the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Has there ever been in your life a profound change in some area of your life? Now, be really careful before you answer this, because we tend to look at one area of our life where we struggle, and we can't seem to get any victory, and we take that one slice and we superimpose it around the rest of our life, but we forget that that's just one slice. There's a whole nother section of the pie, and so I'm asking you, step back from the slice. In fact, put that off to the side for a minute and look at the rest of your life and say, has there been any evidence of change and growth in me? And you know what I would bet? Even for most of you who may be caught up in that slice, there are people in your life who would look at you and say, oh, no, 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 no. You are a different person than you were 10 years ago or five years ago or a year ago. Where did that growth come from? I mean, have you ever just found yourself reading the scripture 
and it's just been monotonous, or you come to church, and it's just monotonous, and then one time you're there, and, and it's like the Word of God just opens up, and you're like, how did I miss that? You know what just happened? The Holy Spirit did something. I mean, if those are the kinds of things that have happened to you, you can be pretty sure that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside you. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, Paul said in Ephesians 1, he is the guarantee of your salvation. Examine yourself that way. And then remain faithful to the faith. Colossians 1, 22 and 23, he is now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above, and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith. Keep believing. We get so worried about, did we believe way back when I was four? And I'm not so much worried about whether or not you believed at four. What I really want to know is, are you believing right now? Keep believing. Did you stop believing that there's another, that that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Did, Did you stop believing that he became your sin substitute? Keep believing. And then in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. Make your calling and election sure. How? Through diligent addition of the virtues that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1. And then resting in his word and not in your works. Confident trust in God's written word. God, this is what you said. And because your character stands behind these words, I am going to rest in them. Confident trust in God's written word and faithful obedience to God's revealed will in that word. That's how the helmet works. It starts with examining myself to make sure that Jesus Christ is in me and I am in him. It it, it involves remaining faithful to what I believe about him. I need to keep believing. It's the idea of making my calling and election sure by not taking my spiritual growth for for granted. I'm actually engaged in the process of growth and, and resting in his words and not in my works. And that brings us to the final thing, and that is this. How can I be confident? Pastor Sam, I heard everything you said this morning I, I've been following along in Isaiah 59. I've been taking notes. I, I, I get what you've said, but I still have this question. How do I know the helmet works? How can I be confident that it will protect me? And so I thought about that, and I found two stories in our Bible that help us with that. And I want to tell those stories to you as we close this morning. The first story occurs in John chapter 4. Verses 45, I'm sorry, verses 46 through 54. It's the story of a time in Jesus' life right after he did his miracles. John has seven miracles that are unique to John. And the first of those miracles, you know very well, it's the miracle when he went to a wedding. Remember, he went to a wedding and he turns water into wine. And so he's in Cana of Galilee, and we're not quite sure exactly whether he stayed there or he was moving out of that little city. But as he is in that region, Cana of Galilee, there is an official, an important official from the city of, Ga- uh, of uh, Capernaum who comes to see him. He walked an entire day's journey to get there. And as soon as he comes to Jesus, he starts pouring out his desperate plea. My son is dying. 
I need deliverance. I need you to save my son. And Jesus does an amazing thing to him. He says to the father, go your way, your son will be well. Now, I want you to stop for a minute. I want you to think about this. You go to the emergency room and you get hold of a doctor and you grab him by his, you know, his stethoscope and you say to him, doc, my, my little boy is sick and he's dying and I need help. And that doc looks at you and says, look, go home. Your kid's going to be fine. What would you do? Most of us would engage in neuthetic counseling with that doctor at this point. Because we're not going to take that for an answer. But you know what this father did? He turned around and he walked a whole day's journey back. And as soon as he got home, his servants met him at the door and they said to him, you'll never believe this. Your son is well. He's getting better. And the dad had a question. Remember the question? When did this start happening? When did the turn come? When did he start getting better? And the answer that the servants gave him was this, about this time yesterday. And John wants you to know something. That man thought back to this time yesterday and he remembered where he was. He was at the feet of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who said, go your way, your son lives. You know, there was a day when you came to that same Jewish rabbi, Jesus, and you said to him, I'm sick of my sins. I want you to forgive me. I want you to deliver me. I want you to save me. You know what Jesus said? Go your way. Your sins are forgiven. And you're going to walk the rest of your earthly journey to the Father's house. And when you finally get there, whether it's 40 years, 50 years, seven years later, you're going to be welcomed in. And if you were to ask the question, so when did this happen? When did all of these sins get forgiven? The answer is going to be, remember way back when you knelt down and you asked Jesus and he said, go your way, your sins are forgiven. They were forgiven back then. That's what this helmet is designed to do. You say, well, that was the nobleman and it was about his kid. It, it wasn't about himself. Well, there's a second person who wore this helmet, and it's shocking. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. First Peter chapter 2 is sacred ground. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, talk about Jesus at the very end of his life. Remember what had been promised to Jesus his father in Daniel 7 had promised him a kingdom. He had promised him authority. He had promised him a people. He had promised him glory. And Jesus put his faith in that promise and he came to dwell among men. He came as a man to dwell among men. And he lived in perfect obedience. And in his 30th year of life, the arch enemy of all of this who showed up in Daniel chapter 7 shows up and says to him, I will give you a kingdom. I will give you all of the kingdoms. And Jesus had to make a choice. Was he going to believe in the promise of his father or was he going to take the offer that was at hand? You say, well, 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 that's easy. No, 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 it wasn't easy. 
Because in order to take the promise of the Father, he had to believe something. He had to believe that God would actually raise him from the dead. He actually had to believe the very same thing that you believe. He had to believe that at the end of his life, that if he would just keep obeying and keep walking, even if that walk took him all the way to the cross and into a tomb, that on the third day, his father would fulfill his word to him and raise him up from the dead. And by the way, did God come through? And the answer is what? Yes. And just like he came through for Jesus, he will come through for you. And that's why Jesus stands in front of you today and he says, look, I know what you're going through. I know that your strength has failed you. I I know that your fears assail you. I, I know that your sin has overwhelmed you. I know that your failure has broken you. I know the darkness that has descended that doesn't lift. I, I know that death approaches. I know that. Believe me, I was there. And I want to give you something that I wore that will serve you like it served me. And it is a helmet of confident expectation that the same God who raised me from the dead will raise you from the dead. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians in verse 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's why this helmet is so precious. That's why it can't be your salvation. It has to be the salvation, the deliverance that God wrought through our Messiah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we wear the confident expectation that the promises he made, that he wrote down in his word, stay in our mouth, and we confidently trust in them. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at us. It doesn't matter how hard he hits us. It doesn't matter where the blows come from. It doesn't matter what he takes away. It doesn't matter what he denies. We just keep going forward because our hope is in the Lord. And as he was raised on the third day, to the highest parts of heaven. Paul says, you will also be raised with him and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's your helmet. Don't ever put it down. Don't ever lose. Hang on to it. Wear it. Because in it is our strength. Lord, thank you for the way that this text unfolds, this majestic truth. Lord, we think of the words you wrote through the mouth of Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. 800 years of silence. 800 years where your arm did not act, where your ear seemed dull. And then in one brilliant moment, in the city of David, in Bethlehem of Judea, a redeemer was born. And you put your spirit on him, just like you told Isaiah you would do. And you put your words in his mouth. And you gave to him offspring. And a room full of us are in this room because of that promise. And so, Lord, may we wear 
the promise you have made to raise us from the dead, to deliver us from the wrath to come, and to protect us from the wrath of the evil one so that we may live in ways that are filled with confident expectation in your strength and in your joy. Maybe you're here this morning and you're going through unbearable suffering. There's uncertainty ahead for you. There are real questions that are swirling around in the soul that, that you just don't want to talk to anybody about, sins that you can't seem to overcome, things that, disappointments that are so deep you don't, you don't know what to do with all of that. And the Word of God ministered grace to you today. It ministered strength to you today. And God came to you and said, here's your helmet. Can I just encourage you to wear it? Trust God. Say, I don't know how to trust. Say what that father said from the message last week. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe you're here this morning and you're coming to realize this thing about the coming wrath, that's serious stuff, and I'm not sure I'm delivered from that. When I look in my own life, I don't see the righteousness of Christ. I've been resting on my own righteousness. I've been resting in my my own works. And I need to repent of that. I, I need to come and ask God to forgive me and to save me. Now, Pastor Sam, I want to do that this morning. It's so simple. Just ask. ask. Say, Lord, I, I repent. I'm in desperate need of forgiveness. Forgive. I want to be received. Receive. And when you call on the name of the Lord, both Testaments, old and new, say, you will be delivered. You will be saved. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe after church, you might find somebody and just say, you know, that thing that Pastor Sam talked about at the end, I did that. I, 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 I want to talk to somebody about that. We'd be happy to do that. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your word and its rich power and its rich truth in our lives. Use it to your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.